Tonight I'd like to speak about the quality and the attitude of equanimity because it takes a very large measure of that to be able to live in this world with all of its ups and downs, this world full of all of its joys and sorrows, and to be in balance in our response to all of that. And also, it takes a large measure of equanimity to do this practice, to be able to sit on our cushion, to be in the silence of our seclusion in being in the world, uh, in this world, retreat world, looking within, noticing whatever is arising and passing away in our hearts, opening to all of those vulnerabilities which can toss us about the ups and downs that come with exploring the mind and heart and body relationship. To stay in balance with this navigation, the navigation of the outer terrain of the world, the navigation of the inner terrain, being with our families, our jobs, uh, the social life that we have, and the global responsibilities, the community and global responsibilities that we have, this is a basic requirement for living in this world, having equanimity, being able to live in this world with equanimity. I came across the words to see the world with quiet eyes, to see the world with quiet eyes. And since I first heard those words, they really began to be a guiding light for me, kind of a rock for me, a place to come back to and ask myself the question, am I seeing the world with quiet eyes? I notice that in today's fast-paced world where everything is so electronically driven, there is an overwhelming number of things that we can react to uh, because we're so swiftly connected with so much, so often. And so there's a number of opportunities to uh, ask myself this question and to see what is going on inside. Am I uh, responding with wisdom? Am I reacting with ignorance, delusion, aversion, attachment? How can I see the world with quiet eyes? It takes looking at my own heart uh, a lot more than looking at the world, in a way. So I've been exploring this in myself for a while now. Those words, to see the world with quiet eyes, came from the Reverend Howard Thurman. He's an African-American, and he co-founded and co-pastored this first interdenominational and intercultural church in San Francisco called the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples. And in one of his books, a um, collection of meditations called Deep is the Hunger, I want to expand on what he said about to see the world with quiet eyes and read his words. So he says, How may one work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world, without despair and complete fatigue. 
What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal? That we may be able to look out on life with all its vicissitudes, the cruelty, the, tr- the joys, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit. And I think that not only myself, but all of us are, f- are faced with this today, that like all of you, I too have this uh, deep, wholesome desire to be of benefit to the world, to do what I can, but not come from a place of reactivity, of just living in the habit patterns, the unwholesome habit patterns of my, my inner world, but to find other ways to respond more intelligently. So as I engage in the various facets of my life, I try to keep asking myself this question, am I seeing the world with quiet eyes? It helps me to discern, am I drawing on this reservoir of inner quiet? Or is it just that I'm allowing myself to fall into the habit patterns that really don't work, that really don't serve myself, that really don't serve the world, that really don't serve this... uh, the deepest wholesome desire I have for liberation. So it's looking at that over and over again, facing the outer world and engaging with it skillfully and easily. This takes the strength of equanimity. Facing the inner world, exploring the terrain of our hearts and minds honestly, that honesty takes a lot of equanimity, that ability to open clearly to what is going on within us. In fact, sometimes for me, it takes a lot more uh, practice of balance, practice of openness to be able to face what goes on inside of my own heart. So in a down-to-earth way, what does equanimity mean? It means not being thrown off balance by the events of the world. And to me, this can mean not just the outer world, which we're mostly pulled and pushed around by consciously, but the inner world that we're pushed and pulled around a lot by unconsciously, unknowingly, unawarely. And that's why we do this work of seeing things as they really are opening our hearts to see what's going on there and to really face it, face it with that kind of stability, that balance, that bigness. So it also could mean not rushing into reaction out of a compulsion to get even or an uninvestigated judgment or opinion about someone or something. Our colleague Gil Fransdale says that this means standing at the center and seeing all sides. And so being in the middle of things uh, so that we can look around and see what's going on on all sides. What we don't like, what we want, what, how we would want it to be, what we do like about the situation, what's beneficial, what's not beneficial. 
To see without being caught by what is seen. To hear without being caught by what is heard. To just face everything with a measure of neutrality. This is uh, another meaning of equanimity. And so I ask myself, am I really doing this all the time? It's, it's a question, it's a koan, it's something that I measure my life with over and over again, and not so successfully a lot of times, but at least I'm leaning, I'm inclining the mind in that direction. So how can I stay grounded in, in the power of equanimity? by just this, standing in the middle of things and taking the time to observe what's going on. Do we give ourselves that time to observe, which we're learning so wonderfully with this uh, mindfulness skill, taking the time to just observe what's happening so that we can respond in the most skillful way possible. Most times, Um, when I'm honest with myself, it's just been a knee-jerk reaction. And it goes into patterns that aren't helpful for myself or anyone around. In the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses uh, by the Buddha, there is a metaphor. There's lots of metaphors about equanimity. And one is of a rock. And it says... As a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. We can get attached to praise. Of course, we can be averse to blame and resistant and push that away. But those who have a heart of equanimity do not need to be stirred or moved. The rock can have the rock of equanimity in our hearts can uh, feel really stable, really grounded. Sometimes the metaphor is of a sky or space. And uh, there are oftentimes when using these metaphors, when I'm in a situation where I'm feeling my own heart react and not really respond with some responsibility of knowing what's happening in my heart. When I know that I'm reacting, I may stop and take stock of what's going on in my own heart and actually remember the stability of a rock, the spaciousness of a sky. And in that spaciousness, which can contain anything that flows through it or within it, I can remind myself that this mind too, this heart too, can open to this, whatever is happening now, because it is what is happening. It's a given. I can't control what has already arisen. Maybe I can have some influence upon what happens in the future, but what has already happened, obviously, I have no control over. So just to be able to contain it, just to be able for the heart to be big enough, for the mind to be big enough to say, this too is part of life. Because it is. 
this is how it is right now, which is one of the phrases that we use with equanimity that I use a lot in everyday life or in my practice and sitting on the cushion or doing walking meditation. When something arises, either outside or inside, and it is, it's kind of shocking or it, I feel like I'm tossed a bit here and there, just to be able to incline the mind towards equanimity with the phrase, this is how it is right now, helps the mind to settle more. Just knowing the possibility, the potential of the mind to go there, that knowing of that potential can often just allow that potential to uh, come to fruition, to be experienced. So this equanimity, that metaphor of the sky that can contain everything, or a spaciousness of mind and heart that can contain all that life presents to us, this is a big um, part of equanimity. And oftentimes it was a part about balance that I looked to but this part about bigness is uh, just as important to me nowadays. So equanimity has that spaciousness that can contain the dualities, all the dualities of this world, all the diversities of this world, and not push them away if we have judgment or opinion about them, or not hold them close because they're so pleasant that we want to cling to them and make them stay forever. But when equanimity is there and can see all the diversity, all the duality that arises and passes away in this world, it sees that part of it, the part that arises and passes away. It sees, it, equanimity supports the seeing of that wisdom, the the deep impermanence of all that is. In seeing that impermanence, what can we hold on to? It comes and it goes all of its own accord. And of course, it includes times that we can have influence and take action upon what needs to uh, have action in the world, uh, have our support, have our help. But when we can do that with a heart that's infused with loving-kindness, with wisdom, then that support is really beneficial. True equanimity is infused with metta, with loving-kindness. It's infused with that caring for ourselves and the world. Equanimity would not be true equanimity if it did not have that kind of caring if it did not have that kind of love with it. So oftentimes people think that equanimity is just a dry kind of callousness, an apathy, which is the near enemy of equanimity, a not caring. But it's not that at all. There's a very deep caring about what goes on in our inner world, in our outer world, because we can see the diversity, 
because we can see the suffering and the joy, the praise and the blame, all the ups and downs of the world. And of course we want to do what we can to help. But we want to do that when we come from a place of quietness inside, when we come from a place of settledness and stability. So it's that genuine caring from a balanced, spacious mind and heart that can hold it all. It's said also that equanimity empowers loving-kindness to promote the welfare of all beings, not just those we prefer. So, as you have seen, many of you have been in the metta retreat for uh, the nine days before this retreat, and you've seen that the boundaries between oneself, a benefactor, a dear friend, a neutral person, and a difficult person, those boundaries begin to dissolve when we do the metta practice because of equanimity. It dissolves the boundaries between one and another, and it promotes this sense of well-being, this support of well-being for everyone, not just for ourselves, not just for those we love. When I was doing, and I still do, the loving-kindness practice, and I go through those uh, uh, individuals down the list, when I'm doing it in a, in a real genuine way, and I, I carry it on with a lot of patience, I come to see when I get to the difficult person that that love, that unconditional love that I am offering to that difficult person, when I really look uh, deeply and clearly, that love is no different than the love that I offer to the benefactor and to the dear friend. It's the same. It's, a, it's not any different. There's kind of an equality. It promotes that equality among all beings. So this equanimity is a kind of a, a hidden part uh, and power of our practice in loving-kindness and also in our mindfulness practice. It's such a great power and part of our practice that many teachers in the various Buddhist traditions teach it up front at the very beginning. I was um, listening to uh, Brahma Viharas, the um, Divine Abodes, a talk given by a Tibetan master. And in that particular practice, instead of beginning with metta, he began with equanimity uh, because equanimity is what actually empowers metta, he said, to have that, to promote that equality between all beings, for all beings, and also to be able to um, uh, offer our friendship and our love to anyone, even when they're going through a hard time, even when they're being really difficult with us, we can say, I offer you my love, even though you're difficult, 
I, you're being difficult with me or acting in this way with me, I still offer you my love. It's that unconditionality. This is what equanimity uh, is, is powerful for in the practice of metta. It provides that unconditionality. I, love, I will offer my love to you no matter what. That is true, true friendship, when we can hold everyone in our hearts that way. So I can't say that I've perfected that, but it's something that I can see is possible, and at times I've experienced it. So just as potent as um, this balance is, so equally potent is the bigness, the unconditionality, the inclusivity that uh, equanimity provides to our minds and our hearts, to our metta metta practice. It's not leaving anything out. It's including all of ourselves. It's the ability to open to the benefactor, the dear friend, the neutral person, and the difficult person outside of ourselves. It's the ability to open to the benefactor within, that um, the the good person within, the, the loving person within ourselves, the person we're kind of neutral with within ourselves, you know, the person we don't pay so much attention to within ourselves, uh, then the difficult person of our own hearts and minds that kind of, we, that act out, and that we open to in quiet times such as this in retreat not leaving anything out, um, and opening to it all with some degree of neutrality. It struck me one time when um, someone said to me, just someone out of the blue, it could have been you know, a dear friend or someone that I was working with as a teacher in a teacher-yogi relationship, that this person said that I try to te- uh, treat the difficult person with as much neutrality as I treat my breath, to open to that person in that way, just without opinions for or against. And this was from the strength of that balance of mind, that bigness of mind, that inclusivity. This is when clear seeing can take place, when there's that that bigness and that balance and that neutrality within that bigness, then that clear seeing of, does this, what I'm coming with into the world, is this going to lead to harmony or is this going to lead to harm? And to be able to, uh, to wait if our minds are filled with something that will cause harm, and to take action if it will cause harmony and benefit to ourselves and others. So I'm pointing that out because uh, over and over again because some, some people equate equanimity to just standing still and doing nothing. But it isn't that at all. It's about 
being still for a moment. Maybe it's a micro moment because we have to act quickly. And it's really seeing what we have to work with inside before we act. And then we take action. So we've seen this quality of big-heartedness, big-mindedness, this ability just to open to it all in people we admire. One uh, person that I greatly admire is Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Um, I have friends who are close to her and also have read quite a bit about her. My mother, who's from a Catholic tradition, and I was raised Catholic also, she um, would love any nun in robes. And so I bought her books of Mother Teresa, easy ones that she could see pictures of and read. So I got to know more about Mother Teresa and went to uh, her place in Calcutta. And it struck me so much how she was able to help the sick and the dying and those with horrible diseases, leprosy and the like, and to be able to treat all beings with that kind of equality that all beings deserve to be well cared for and deserve to die with nobility and respect. I imagine that it took a huge amount of equanimity, of balance of mind. It took a huge bigness of heart to be able to do that, to be able to care for people such as that. Um, It's said that equanimity is the forerunner of compassion. It's equanimity that really comes first before true compassionate action can come into our lives because it allows that balance, it allows that bigness, and it allows that compassionate action to come through with full force, without any bias, without leaning towards what we like or pushing away what we don't like, but just to see it all with a balanced, neutral mind and heart. Closer to home, one of the um, teachers that I guess you hear a lot of stories from, uh, about from me. Someone said, oh, I can't wait to hear your Manindra stories again. (laughs) Um, So I'll tell you one Manindra story about uh, this bigness of heart, this inclusivity. Uh, There's so many that I could draw from. One of the times he was staying with me at our home uh, when I was uh, raising my four children, and um, he was in my house, and he was recovering, recuperating from an illness and some surgery. And there was a knock at the door, and my daughter, my third child, who's now grown, answered the door. And it was um, a beautiful young man and from the Mormon church, and he was asking people in the neighborhood if they wanted to learn the Bible if they wanted to have some Bible lessons. And so this was, um, you know, and Manindra was right there sitting nearby. And my daughter invited him into the house and he sat down where he could see Manindraji in his white robes and bald head and 
beautiful um, dark Indian skin. And um, so the young man was looking at, you know, uh, Manindraji and wondering what was going on. And, <laughs> and so, you know, she considered it, she listened and she considered it. And then uh, the young man left. And uh, so he was doing his job as part of his church. And of course, we, we appreciated that. And so she sat down and she said to Manindra that she wanted to study the Bible. She's always wanted to study the Bible. And Manindraji said, that's wonderful. You should study the Bible. And I also have studied the Bible. And it's a good thing to study the Bible. And she asked, Can I, should I invite him? And Manindraji said, yes, you should invite him to the house. You should say yes and have him come to the house. And so the young man did. He came to the house and, um, you know, there was, she soon got bored with it. But, um, but what I noticed the most was that Manindra just had such a big heart about it and was totally okay and just saw the goodness of it all. And he praised whatever she learned. We, she talked about it when we sat down together. And he praised what, he, what she learned and what the young man taught her. And so I could see that, you know, she was teaching, he was teaching uh, my daughter, Tracy, with his own modeling of seeing the world with quiet eyes and with big eyes, with a big eye, uh, heart and big eyes and not to push anything away. We could go into the extremes of, you know, the, the extreme of reactivity and say, oh no, not this because of so many judgments and opinions about that particular situation or that person or what he was offering at the door or the various other things that get uh, put in front of us in our lives. But equanimity is about resting the mind before it falls into extremes. It can see that it may go this way or that way, the extreme of attachment, being attached to what we think we should know or what, we, uh, what is pleasant to us to know, what agrees with us, and pushing away with what is di- disagreeable to us. With equanimity, the mind can actually see that happening. It doesn't, it isn't ignorant of that at all. It actually sees the mind that goes to one extreme. It sees the mind that goes to another extreme. But more and more swiftly, it can rest the mind in some balance. Sometimes it doesn't even need to go there in a very solid way. The mind can be seen Uh, going one way or another, it can be seen very quickly. And so equanimity can be established very quickly. Resting the mind before it falls into extremes, not being thrown off or tossed around, tossed about by the outer events of the world. So all these various ways of describing or defining this wholesome attitude of mind So how can we live a life that's big-hearted enough to do this? We close off what we don't like. 
we gravitate and cling to what we like without giving ourselves a chance to explore the other side and possibly develop compassion uh, for ourselves and for others. How can we open to all the ups and downs, the joys and sorrows, and live a truly spiritual life? That a lot of us come to the spiritual uh, world and we want to develop our spiritual life, but we don't see sometimes that we only want to open to what's pleasant. We only want to open to the bliss and not to open to what's hard about uh, what's difficult about life. I'm loving the newest teachings by uh, the Sayadaw Utejaniya because the first thing he says is to be aware of the defilements. They are so hidden, we don't even know it sometimes. Just to be aware of them. And so um, to open to all of that is the spiritual life, not just to what we (coughs) like or what's pleasant. So opening to all without closing down in denial, without pushing away in aversion, without insisting that it be a certain way because of attachment, but being able to explore everything. This pushing away in denial, uh, resisting with aversion, or holding on, clinging to something for dear life, these are all uh, what is called the far enemy of equanimity. And these are all in the realm of reactivity. So, of course, it doesn't mean that nothing is going on inside. It's not a cold aloofness or emotional emptiness, which is how the near enemy of equanimity feels, that kind of apathy. But, in fact, it's really connecting in a very caring, very intimate way. It's really connecting with what's going on. Um, I have seen in my, one of my own teacher's eyes tears fall. You know, when there tears fall, when there's sadness. And, but, you know, they're gently coming down and there's no denial of it. One time when I saw him parting from a dear friend when we were in Sarnath in India, and this was another monk, and they were parting, and I saw the tears coming uh, in, in his eyes, and they were, it wasn't like sobbing or anything, but I asked him what's going on, and he said, there is sadness, sadness is here, and parting from someone we love and that brings sadness. But I really felt that there was this deep seeing and acknowledgement of that, with quiet eyes. There wasn't like a pushing away of it. There wasn't like a denying that there was sadness in his heart. There wasn't like an attachment to that he had to be looking good, you know, or being really cool about it. But it was a modeling for me that we can really connect with what's going on in our hearts and not get thrown about by it. So we can feel the usual ups and downs, which are called the eight vicissitudes of life, Um, the uh, 
ups and downs of life, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain, all these ups and downs of life. There are many, many more. I'm sure you could add the this and that to this list. But when they happen, equanimity allows us to see that, first of all, that, oh yeah, the mind is going in that, leaning in that direction towards um, getting attached to praise, pushing or having an aversion towards blame, clinging to pleasure, and denying pain, you know, all of those various ways that we react to it. When equanimity is there, when there's this balance and bigness of mind that's there, it can hold it all, but not get lost and not kind of um, fall into an abyss of one or the other, neither attachment nor aversion or denial of it either. So it's not such a big drama. You know, we may feel a going this way or that way in our minds and our hearts, but we don't, it doesn't have to be such a, a very intense thing, a very intense event. The events of our lives can be handled with much more ease and a sense of well-being in our hearts. We're able to say, when something unfolds in our hearts, we're able to say, this too is part of the unfolding of my life. This too is the unfolding of my journey and not make it wrong, or not be ashamed of it, or not blame any place, but to just truly accept that. This too, because it is, because this is the way it is right now. There's that deep acceptance of that moment. And when we, when we practice that as we are here with what's going on in our hearts, we're more able to practice that with the world with what's going on out there, when we're able to say, this is part of life too. The, the events of life, these tragic events that happen in life, this too is part of the unfolding of life. Instead of saying, this should not be happening with righteous indignation, it is happening. Our hearts and minds of equanimity accept it and say, this is happening, and what can I do about it? It doesn't stop there. It says, what can I do about it? But what can I do about it from a place of quietness inside, a place of wisdom inside? So to be able to face it with a lot of patience So a lot of our own lives um, in in these past years, many of us have had close friends, family members, beloved teachers um, go through illnesses and death. And uh, we're all hearing about it much, much more. And it's happening very intimately to all of us. And this quality of um, balance, of um, bigness of heart, we all need this much, much more in today's world. Birth and death are part of life. Um, Sickness and health are part of life. 
Gain and loss are part of life. Uh, Praise and blame are part of life. All of this, it's just all part of the unfolding of life. When we can really open to all of that, there's a poignancy and a beautiful juxtaposition of love and wisdom with all of that. So with equanimity, we bring the caring and love that comes because we have this very deep acceptance and balance with all of life, towards all of life. But we, with that deep love and acceptance and balance comes the clarity to see things as they are, to be able to see to the depth of what holds this whole world together in a way, um, what, what makes this whole world chaotic, what brings harmony, what brings harm. We're able to see that much more clearly. So wisdom at all different levels gets uh, exposed to us with equanimity. It takes a courage of love to open to all these ups and downs. And that results in a lot of wisdom to be able to glean from what we're opening to, the wisdom factors of seeing everything is so swiftly moving along, the impermanence of everything, of lives, of this, of this day, of this moment, of a moment of pleasure, of a moment of pain, the vulnerability that we're living in, and to be able to get used to that vulnerability develops that equanimity. Manindra used to always say, surrender to how it is. Surrender to the law. The law would be how it is. The, uh, the natural unfolding of the laws of cause and effect. And oftentimes I would go to him in daily life experiences or in my retreat life experience and, and say something to him about what was going on. And he would say a few things um, oh, more than he would say other things. He would say, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. Sometimes he would just say that a few times over and over again. And meaning to say, see the impermanent nature of this experience. See the impermanent nature of this experience. Another way he would say that is surrender to the law, surrender to how things are. And he would say it with such quiet eyes, with such exquisite compassion, that it couldn't be anything else but love and equanimity, balance, that was telling me that, not apathy or a callousness or an indifference. So those words come to me a lot, surrender to the law. This is how it is in the very difficult times of my practice, the, those words, surrender to the law. This is the way it is. It can't be any other way because it's already this way. So I don't want to add, it's already painful. 
why should I add another moment of pain to it to push it away or to uh, more deeply ingrain attachment by running after something that's more pleasant or more deeply ingrain uh, ignorance or delusion by being in denial of it. So surrender to the law, just open to this moment, how it is. The clear experience of this moment is non-delusion. We're developing that when we open to how it is. The clear uh, seeing of this moment as going, it's letting go of itself, really. Clear seeing of this moment of impermanence brings about the understanding of how can there be any attachment at all? It's all going anyway of its own accord. There's nothing to do. So attachment, how can there be attachment to anything Clinging to anything would cause more suffering. And the accepting how it is is the opposite of resisting how it is. So uh, the letting go of aversion also happens with this equanimity which brings about clear seeing, which sees all of these uh, experiences more clearly. When we let go of attachment, when we let go of denial, when we let go of aversion, then that very powerful, compassionate action from the heart can come forth. Or that what we often forget about is the skillful decision to not take action, to, to wait, to wait for more information, to wait for... Uh, a heart that may be more settled before we go forth. This is how it is. I was um, another Menendra story when I was in India with him. Um, there was a place where we were at where we had to hire a car to get back to um, Bombay and um, Mumbai, it's called now. And we were in a hill town. And so we spent a lot of time trying to hire a car, you know, interviewing the various people who wanted us to hire their car and um, seeing who was the honest one and who had the most honest face and um, uh, the, the right car, you know, was it in good order? Did it, was it fairly, you know, new among all the old cars that were there? So we finally settled upon this one person, and there were six of us, and quite small cars that they have. Um, It turned out to be six of us because there were three women and Manindra and the driver, and he brought along somebody else. (laughs) So we asked him why he was bringing along someone else. Manindra asked him in, in in their language, and the person driving said, because he knows the way. (laughs) I don't know the way. We needed to get to the airport there. And so we said, okay. And I looked at Manindra, and Manindra said, this is India, you know. (laughs) And he was saying, this is how it is. 
So before that, we had ridden in a lot of cars, and they were they would always go so fast. You know, it would be really scary. They would pass cars on roads where cars were coming right towards us, and we had to close our eyes all the time. And um, one time, we were riding between uh, Bodh Gaya, actually, and Varanasi, taking that long, treacherous road. And we turned around and asked Manindra, is this your first time on this driving on this road, Manindra, in a car? He said, first and last. <laughs> anyway, we were in this hill town, and we were headed down the hill. And we were used to cars going so fast, but this car was going really slow, and it seemed to be just kind of gliding down the hill, coasting. And I, I was wondering why he's really, maybe Manindra asked him to go slowly or something. And so I tapped Manindra, he was in the front, I said, Manindraji, why are they going so slow? So he said, he said, he asked them very casually, and then he got the answer and he turned back and he said, no gas. <laughs> Just very, very neutrally. And I said, Manindraji, no gas. And he said, this is India. You know? <laughs> this is how it is. But we, we did coast into a gas station. And then I, I realized that was the second reason for that other person to be there, to push the car in case we needed to. So it's like that ability, okay, now I know when, you know, another time I went to India and I could say that to my, oh, this is India, whenever I came across something that it wasn't like it's going to be. I can't insist that it's going to be the way it is anywhere else. So just being, my heart and mind being big enough to know it's the way it is wherever it is. And, you know, why add insult to injury and fight it? Just, can I work with it? So if our minds are clear and spacious, it really allows the ability to be honest about how things are. That's another beautiful quality that comes about with equanimity. Just to be really honest with what's going on in one's own heart. To notice clearly. To... Um, bring, bring that clarity of mind to our practice, which is oftentimes so hard to do. We want to believe that it's different than it is, or we want to chase after and be with only what's um, favorable to us or pleasant to experience. So when we know what's going on in our hearts and we can act from a place of not clinging, or uh, an absence of aversion, then our words and our deeds have a powerful healing effect on the world, on ourselves and in the world. It nourishes those around us instead of, you know, when somebody comes uh, towards us or anyone and is trying to help, but you can really feel a lot of different vibes underneath that trying to help. It doesn't feel healing at all. It, it feels confusing. That's what we feel, confused. Of course, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is a great example of this, navigating his world with a lot of compassion 
and that clarity of equanimity that equanimity brings. He says about equanimity, in that state of mind you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason while keeping your inner happiness. So what happens when we open to a place inside that we know that there's reactivity? And so this happens a lot in our daily life and in our practice here. When we see that there's a lot of clinging or there's a lot of aversion to something, I look at that as maybe, you know, there something happened in the outer world and the inner world reacted with clinging or aversion. Maybe I haven't been successful in dealing with the outer world, but now I have a second chance to deal with what's going on in my heart. So I found that actually even more important than dealing with the outer world situation is dealing with this inner world situation and developing equanimity around the reactivity that has already happened. Whenever there's a feeling, something reminds me of the past and I feel ashamed or guilty, and that has already arisen. And instead of going round and round about the story, to turn my attention away from the story, just let the story go and face what's going on in my heart, that shame or that guilt, or that place where I can honestly say, you know, I can't stand that person, and feel that aversion in my own heart. And know that with equanimity. Be inclusive about that this too is part of this life's journey. This too is part of my heart's unfolding. Can I accept that moment as it is? And sometimes my equanimity phrases, may I accept this moment just as it is. That's equanimity as well as loving kindness. May I accept this moment just as it is. This moment of feeling guilty, this moment of feeling ashamed, this moment of feeling embarrassed, of feeling aversion, hatred, clinging, wanting it to be a certain way. And that has become just as important to me as facing the outer world and dealing with that. In fact, you know, a lot of our spiritual life is uh, being willing to open and be honest with all of that. So closer to home, in a conversation I had just recently with someone, it turned, this conversation turned a bit into an argument something that we all experience, if you're normal. And (laughs) so I was trying to make my case, you know, about where I was standing in the situation. And I was trying to do it with as much calmness and clarity as I could, but I realized it wasn't too far into the situation, conversation where I realized that I wasn't very calm, that I was really clinging to an idea of how my opinion about how it is. The conversation wasn't getting anywhere. And so I had the wherewithal to turn my attention away from trying to be clear, trying to make my case, 
trying to be involved in that, in that uh, conversation. And for a few moments, turn towards what's going on in my heart and could realize and see, recognize, ah, there's a clinging here. There's an aversion to what's happening. And there was an acceptance, an admittance of this is happening. And could I develop equanimity around that to say, this is how it is in my heart right now. And when I could develop enough equanimity there, which only took a few moments, it wasn't a big deal, I could say to her, this person, with a a better calmness, a better kind of balance, you know, I think I better stop now because I'm not being so clear with myself. And that person said, yeah, I can tell you're confused, which brought up another whole thing, you know, within me. But I just put the... I just put that invisible duct tape on my mouth. And I just said, mm-hmm. And I was saying, mm-hmm, to my own, mm-hmm, this is the way it is in my heart right now. And I probably, you know, walked off the other person feeling, mm-hmm. But that's all right, you know, I'm still dealing with it, as you can tell. But this is, that's the practice, you know, to turn the attention here and to say, okay, this is happening right here in my heart. Can I accept this and bring some measure, some measure of balance to that? So equanimity is not this precarious balancing, you know, on a razor's edge that if you fall one way, you're wrong, or, you know, fall one way, another way, you're hurt. But it's this very wide stance, like a mountain. Very, very wide stance. It feels stable. It feels grounded. It feels very, very steady. There's the ability to hold praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. And to be able to hold it all in steadiness, in balance, with a big, big heart. It's a capacity to be attentive to a wide range of experience, not just the limited range of what we feel comfortable in, but where can we open to what we're uncomfortable with. So um, this is a... I'd like to end with this... um, It's a picture, actually, I'm describing to you that... um, of an experience I had when one of the last times I saw Manindraji. And I go back to this picture when I need that kind of um, subjective experience of equanimity. And it was a day when we were in Varanasi on that trip that I was talking about. And it was the last day and we were on our way to Calcutta. We were going to go to the airport in the afternoon. But in the morning, we had hired a boat to go down the Ganges River. And um, it was a beautiful day. It was a very clear day. And I had um, at my side Manindraji. And because, you know, he's getting older, those days we never knew when would be the last time we could see him. So it was always precious moments when we could spend with him.
So as we went uh, down the river on this last day, uh, on the far horizon was the, the rising sun, the morning sun, and it was a beautiful dawn, and we could see the, the crest of the sun coming up on the horizon, and the, the pinkness of the sky, and the placidness of the river. That was on one side, and on the other side, as we were going down the Ganges River in Varanasi, were all the burning ghats where they burned the dead bodies. So there was this beauty on my left, and there was this rawness on my right, you know, and um, you could see some of the bodies burning on the pyres of wood. It was an awe-inspiring sight to be able to hold what was on my left and to behold what was on my right. It took a big mind to stretch, you know, to really stretch to hold that. And then there was Manindra, you know, he was uh, at my side, and we were holding hands, and, um, you know, it was very poignant. And, um, and I felt so grateful to, you know, one of the greatest things is to have a teacher. So I, I felt so grateful to have, I feel so grateful to have the teacher in Manindra. And so being there with that gratitude and that goodness and um, the happiness of that, just the happiness of having a wonderful um, guide like that. And then on the other side was, were all, was all the sorrow of the people crying for the ones who had left and being alone in their life. So being able to hold that joy and that sorrow, you know, to stretch to hold that, to stretch the mind and the heart. The good fortune, mudita, to have the good fortune of having friends there um, that were also there in the boat, and the, the compassion for those who were crying in sorrow, the stretch of the mind and heart to do that. The beauty of India and the rawness of India, you know, to be able to hold all of that. So that is the, the, the bigness of heart, of compassion, um, just as important as the balance of, uh, of equanimity, the bigness of equanimity, the balance of equanimity. And so to end with this poem by William Stafford, and it comes from the book The Way It Is, and it comes from his poem in the book, the way it is. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you cannot get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die and you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop time's unfolding. You don't ever lose the thread. So let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. So we have about um, 40 minutes to walk. And thank you.